0: Well, good morning. My name's Scott, uh, one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you decided to join us. We're ending a series today um, called Religious Lies. And we're looking at the lies that are perpetuated by churches, people, uh, the institution of religion itself that keep people trapped. And we're doing our best to understand what those lies are so that we can reject them and pay attention instead to what Jesus said. And so today, I'm going to talk about one of the lies, and it, I'm, I'm just, I need to qualify all that I'm going to say today, because uh, we're going to talk about hell. I know on Mother's Day, there's no better subject than talking about hell, right? What a great, yes, Mother's Day, hell, they go together. Um, i not trying to say your mother, okay, I'm not even going to touch that, um, <laughs> Uh, but we're going to talk about it because we're looking at a chapter in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus has this scathing critique of religion uh, that we have to pay attention to and Jesus brings it up. So we're bringing it up because Jesus brings it up and we're going to do our best to uh, understand what Jesus means when he talks about um, hell. And I, I just need you to know I'm not, I'm not going to, this is not the final word on this subject. I could, we could talk about this for a long, long time. Uh, this is not even the best word on this subject. I'm just going to do my best to try and explain to you how Jesus thinks about this and, and, uh, and what we need to do as a result of it. Are you, are you okay with that? Right? Just turn to your neighbor and say, oh no, I'm not even going to say that. I'm not, <laughs> that's i go going through my head that I'm not going to even go to. Uh, just turn to your neighbor and say hi. Um, <clears throat> I want to invite you to stand with me. We read uh, together from the scriptures. Uh, these are the words of Jesus. I'll read them aloud. They'll be on the screen and uh, then we'll look at what they mean for our lives. Uh, Jesus, Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, so people like me, you hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, read that last whole phrase with me. Ready? 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 You make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. When you came in, hopefully you got a, a, a note sheet. What happens with that is there are blanks that you can fill in if that helps you. And on the back, our life groups during the week answer some of the questions and helps them talk about it. Uh, well, here's, here's the first thing I want to tell you is that Jesus is against what I'll call a religious spirit. Um, The reason Jesus is against the religious spirit is because the religious spirit kills. Now, literally, this can be the case. Uh, It's it's not a stretch today to say that people are killed in the name of religion. You see it on the news. Uh, This has always been the case. In fact, there's a famous scene in the Gospel of John where there's a woman who's caught in adultery, and all the people, in the name of God, are ready to kill this woman for doing something wrong. So religious literally kills But it also kills, and this may be the more damning thing, uh, is that religion kills people's hearts and souls. They believe some twist on the truth that's a half-truth, and it messes them up. I I remember uh, reading, uh, this was younger days for me, uh, in 1 John, where 1 John, we're going to look at this starting next week in a new series, uh, where he talks about, he says, listen, if our hearts condemn us, and I read that phrase, if our hearts condemn us, and I went, oh, man, I'm, my heart condemns me a lot. I must be a total mess. And I remember I had this incredible anxiety settle over me because I was picking up the cues from the religion around me, and I thought, my heart does condemn me, and then God must condemn me. And I, and I, I remember carrying around this incredible burden like I'm under condemnation, and I never, I never saw, for whatever reason, the next part of the verse that says God's greater than our hearts. We'll talk about that more next week. But religion kills the heart of a person. Here's the reason why is, is a religious spirit, this is how I'm defining it, is a set of expectations you can't ever quite reach. Uh, when you're around a religious spirit, you just know it oozes off of a person or it oozes off of a church. And you go, man, I, want, I don't know what that is. But I don't want anything to do with it. So people in, in, that have a religious spirit, they will say when you mess something up, hey, forgive me, and they'll say, yeah, I forgive you, but you know they don't really mean it. They'll say when something doesn't go right, yeah, yeah, no, 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 don't worry about it. It's okay, but you know. You don't know how you know, but you know that it's not. They'll say things like, I believe in the grace of God but you know in their actions and responses to you that that is obviously not true. A religious spirit is like, uh, like radiation. Some of you are old enough to remember this, some of them are not, but the, the meltdown of the reactor in Russia and Chernobyl. Uh, here's a sign that they still have up today warning you about that. I don't read Russian, so whatever that says, but we know the sign, right? If you come into this, If you come into this space, you're going to have this invisible force that's going to invade your body and mess you up. I, you can't see it, but you always feel it. And it's the same thing for a religious spirit. When you're around those people that have a religious spirit or that place that exudes a religious spirit, you eventually, like radiation not knowing it, you eventually feel this wooziness. And when you're around it for long enough, especially if you grow up in it, you, you, you're radiated by this atmosphere that you're around, this religious spirit atmosphere. And then ultimately what happens is then you give off the same radiation. That's how radiation works. You get irradiated, and then anyone that's around you has the same exact thing. Now, I, this is how, I, this is how I, I, I know you're experiencing a religious spirit, any kind of spirit. You experience it in three ways, um, a look, a word, and a touch. A look, a word, and a touch. So a religious spirit, someone with a religious spirit, the look that they give you is this look of almost perpetual disappointment, like, mm, I could have done better. Uh, the words that someone who has a religious spirit, they, what they communicate, and they don't always mean this. Uh, listen, anyone who grows up around this, they, they want the best, but they just, this is all they know how to do. Uh, they let you know how you didn't measure up, and usually it's kind of passive-aggressive, uh, but they let you know in the words that they use. Maybe it's very direct that you disappointed them in some way. And then and then the touch that comes across is a touch down. I don't mean, oh, score. I mean, they if they touch you, it's like this condescending kind of pat to let you know that you don't really measure up. And they let you know that you could have done better. And often the way touch is communicated is by not touching you. And when you are hugged or touched, it's, uh, it's somehow a reward for doing it the right way according to them. This is a religious spirit, and Jesus says that it kills. Now, the, the reason this kills is, is because, because the message of the, a religious spirit is primarily about sin. Like, that's the, kind of the whole deal. And there are different kinds of sins. There are sins that you commit. Um, those are the things that you did that you shouldn't have done. We've all done that. Uh, then there are sins of omission, things that you didn't do that you should have. We've all, we've all done that. We're, it doesn't take even a religious person to recognize that that's a reality. Things like that happen on a regular basis. But that's the basic message of a religious spirit. It's all about sin, and so it's primarily bad news. So the news that you get, gets communicated to you is you're terrible. Maybe if you would do a little bit better, God would be pleased with you. What, uh, what that kind of religion does is it reduces the message of Jesus down to uh, a smaller version that's not as entrancing and not as welcoming. Now, this is, I've got these four chairs here, and uh, this kind of symbolizes, I'm going to give you the Bible in four chairs, okay? The entire story of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates us, and uh, when God creates the world, do you know what Genesis 1 and 2 says, how it communica- well, God communicates what he thinks about what he's created, including you? Oh, do you know what the word's used? It's G-O-O-D, good. And when God creates you, very good. You were created very good. This was God's original intention. And then Genesis chapter three, sin is introduced into the world. There's the fall, so it's creation. There's fall, There's we've messed things up, we've made the wrong decision. Uh, and then then that's not the end of the Bible. Then you read all the rest of the Old Testament and all the way in uh, to the beginning of Matthew and Jesus comes to redeem his fallen creation that he meant for it to be good. He redeems the world and then he begins putting us To write and makes restoration. So there's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's the whole Bible. What the religious spirit does is it gets rid of restoration and it gets rid of creation. And it starts in Genesis chapter 3. You're a sinner. You are terrible. Stop being terrible. But Jesus died for the sins of the whole world so you can go to heaven when you die. Have any of you ever heard the message like that? Like, no no mention of the fact that God made you good, and no mention of the fact that God wants to put you back together. Just, you kind of (laughs) suck. So, what happens when, when this is the only message that gets conveyed is that actually leaves your actual life totally untouched. And so I could name you all kinds of different denominations, Catholic, Baptist, Nazarene, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, where there are these religious rites that you think you have to go be involved in to be right with God. They're all these kind of mumbo-jumbo kinds of things that don't really make any sense in and of themselves, but somehow you think that you have to do that, but you live the rest of your life however you want because you think God doesn't care about it. It's all about how you've screwed up, and how God's disappointed in you, and you're trying to earn your way into God's acceptance. This is a religious spirit. This is the religion that Jesus was against. I kind of got some, uh, a, little, a little chart here. I think we've got this, um, the difference between religion and then the message of Jesus, which is about the kingdom of God, and how those things are different. And in, in religion, uh, it's all about what you do. Did you do enough? Did you do the wrong thing? Did you do the right thing? In the kingdom of God, it's what's been done for you by Jesus, uh, in religion, it's about insiders and outsiders. You're, you're one of us or you're not one of us. There's us and there's them in the name of God. And in the kingdom of God, it's y'all come. My, my mom's family's from the south and y'all means you all. Y'all come. It's like everybody's welcome in the kingdom of God. Uh, in religion, you please a God that you basically create. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about how we sometimes create God in our own image. And in the kingdom of God, Jesus reveals what God's like. When you see Jesus, you see what God's like. In religion, there's a scapegoat. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. In the kingdom of God, it's Jesus bears our pain. We don't have to scapegoat anybody anymore. We don't have to blame people. Uh, in, in religion, it's all about pretending, putting on a face, uh, having it all together. In the kingdom of God, it's you're free to confess. You're free to be known. You're free to have somebody love you. In, the kingdom of, uh, in, in religion, it's all about condemnation because you didn't measure up. And in the kingdom of God, it's about grace. It's about grace. So Jesus uh, says that the result of a religious spirit is that we create what he calls children of hell. Now, hell's something that Jesus actually talked a lot about, and I'm, I'm not going to go in great detail. Again, this is not exhaustive. I'm not trying to be heretical. I'm going to make you think. I hope everyone leaves here. Whatever, whatever stripe you are coming from religiously, maybe nothing, maybe something that you walk away and you go, hmm, I hadn't thought about like that. Uh, I'm going to make you upset, probably, so bear with me. Um, but we're going to talk about what Jesus talks about. Let's think about hell for a second, right? Uh, what, what is what is hell? Hell is everything that God is not forever. Uh, it's the removal of all that is God. So uh, the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians in the New Testament, he says that the fruit of God's Spirit are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. These are things from God. Imagine a reality where all of those things are removed. No love, no joy, no peace, no patience, no kindness, no goodness, no gentleness, no self-control. What would you have if you removed all of those things? Well, that would be hellish. Heaven, on, uh, on the flip side, is everything that God is forever. It's the remove of all, removal of all that is not God. All the pain, all the brokenness, all the hurt, all the difficulty, all the bitterness, all the betrayal, all the unforgiveness, all wiped clean. And Jesus talks about both of those things. Now, he uses two very um, unique words when he talks about heaven and hell. Uh, there are two Greek words, and it's Gehenna and Hades. Would you say that with me? Gehenna and Hades. Uh, Hades is the world. It was a Greek concept. It was the underworld where your soul went when you died. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 16, 18. He's talking to Peter, and he says, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, will not overpower it. Kind of a generic way to think about Death. So, Jesus, when sometimes when he uses the word hell, he's using the word Hades. But then there's another word that he uses, Gehenna, and it's from a place called the Hinnom Valley. Uh, in Jerusalem, hold off on the picture in just a second, guys. Uh, in Jerusalem, where uh, in ancient times, the god Malek was worshipped. And the god Moloch, in people's understanding, required child sacrifice. And so child sacrifice took place in this valley. And because Jewish people said, well, that was that's a foreign god. We shouldn't do anything with that. They turned that into the garbage dump. And so all their garbage was taken there, and it was on fire. It was on fire continually. The smoke was always rising. If you went there, the smoke was so thick that it would make your eyes weep. And you would grind your teeth and go, oh, this is disgusting. This is terrible. Um, it's, the, it's the Hinnom Valley. Here's, I've got a picture of the Hinnom Valley today outside of Jerusalem. And it is frozen over. So if you ever made a promise for when hell freezes over, it is time to pay up. Uh, But here's how Jesus describes the the Gehenna, Um, Matthew chapter 8. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the future. But the sons of the kingdom, the people who grew up around all this kind of stuff, the people who were influenced by this, will be cast out into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's referencing everyone new. You go to the garbage dump, it's dark, you can't see, it's disgusting. And then he goes on uh, later in in Mark chapter 9, he says, listen, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, everyone, oh, the garbage dump. I I get it, Jesus. And so Jesus is in effect saying, "How how would you like to be so used up in your life that you're worth nothing but to be thrown on the garbage dump of eternity. I mean, that's just kind of, I know this is not a, a happy subject for Mother's Day, but stay with me, okay? So, so the, the thorough teaching of Jesus uh, is that Hades and Gehenna are realities. Now listen, um, I, got, I got to be honest with you, honest people who follow Jesus follow Jesus, meaning that we take what Jesus says seriously, and so we give more weight to what Jesus says than to anything. Now, the reason we do that is because we say, as Christians, that Jesus rose from the dead. And so, if you can rise with the dead, whatever you say goes. If you rise from the dead, I will, say, I will just go, whatever you say. <laughs> yep, sure. Jesus, so we give all this weight to what Jesus says, and Jesus taught that there is a reality known as Hades and Gehenna, and it's, it's, he uses all this language. Um, Now, I got to be honest with you. I wish there was a way around that. I wish this was not something that Jesus taught. I personally don't like it. It seems unfair. Uh, It seems harsh. It seems uh, not fitting with the spirit of our age. And and I got to say, honestly, I, I hope, especially if you grew up around this, you shouldn't want there to be people in hell because God doesn't want people to be in hell. Peter says that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So you shouldn't want that. But for me, and understanding, this is me, my interpretation here, understanding how, for me, turns on, on two questions about the character and nature of God. And, and here they are. If you've got notes, you can keep them. First one is this. Is, is God, uh, is, in your understanding, is God small minded here's what I mean by that. Does does God uh, operate with the reward and punishment system? Is that kind of his whole deal? Is there, is God just about the carrot and the stick? Don't we think that someone who leads with a carrot and a stick only, if that was their only tool in their leadership tool bag, you would go, that's not a very good leader. That's not a very good boss. Now, if you're a parent, you know you start out with the carrot and the stick. Why do you do that? Because you're trying to teach your kids to behave in a different way. But if they're in college or they're in trade school or they're 22 years old and you're still using the carrot and the stick, like something's gone wrong, right? It's kind of small, kind of a, a narrow kind of a, a way of, of seeing things. And, and, and so just go down this path with me for a second if there's a divine intelligence that created the universe, is that all God has is the carrot and the stick? Now, that's how we commonly think about hell. It's like the carrot and the stick. I want the carrot. I want to avoid the stick. Um, and and like, So, is God basically saying, listen, you screwed up. Now, go rot in hell for all eternity and think about what you've done. Kind of like he sent you to your room, but forever. That conception of God is pretty small-minded. So if, if God's not small-minded, then what in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, here's the second question, and it, it, for hell, for, for me and my understanding, is that it, is God wise? In other words, does God do what's best for people? C.S. Lewis, one of my heroes, wrote a bunch of books, um, talked about them last week a little bit, but one of the books that he wrote is called The Great Divorce. It's really small, it's about that big, read it this week. Uh, again, uh, and the, it's, a, it's kind of an allegory, and he writes about these people who are in hell, they don't realize that they're in hell, and they get on a bus, and they go to heaven. And he describes their experience, these people who uh, come from reality, that they don't really, aren't even really aware of, but they're stuck in it. And they go to heaven and how they're unable to make sense of what they're experiencing. And here's, here's what he's trying to communicate. is He says that heaven is where only reality happens. Everything absolutely real happens in heaven. Everything is as real as it can be. The weight of reality weighs on you like you can't believe when you're in heaven. And hell, though, is where you are fully responsible for the person that you are. Who you have become, the kind of choices that you've made, the character that you've developed, it is all on you. There is no one else to blame. But, C.S. Lewis says, but you refuse to see it because you're too proud to admit anything else is happening. And so I, I kind of think, instead of thinking in terms of reward and punishment, that we should think about it in terms of responsibility and reality because there's a, a tension in how Jesus describes hell. He says, if you were paying attention, he talks on one hand, There's going to be outer darkness. And then on the other hand, he says there's fire. Well, is Jesus contradicting himself? No, I think he's saying it's a reality you could not possibly imagine. And so C.S. Lewis says the people in hell, they've become a certain kind of person and they're too proud to change. So he says it like this. This is a a powerful quote. This is what he says. Uh, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No, Listen, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. And now we even have a saying about this. We, we say this. We say, I'd, I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. What if when Jesus is talking about hell, he's saying, I'm just going to let you have what you wanted. You didn't want me. And so we have this saying when I was growing up, we said that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, meaning that God doesn't force himself on you. And if that's the character of God now, that will always be the character of God. And, And Dallas Willard says it like this. He says, hell is the best that God can do for some people because they don't want God. They want nothing to do with God. If in this life you want nothing to do with God, why, why would you want God for eternity? I mean, why would you choose that? So, I, I know that's a lot to chew on, but this is why the message of Jesus is so refreshing because Jesus gives what the writers of the New Testament call the good news of the kingdom. We're going to talk about what that means. And so here's what Jesus says. He he talks about hell, and then he says that when when you practice a a religious spirit kind of religion, that you end up making people twice as much a child of hell as you are, and and what you are doing is you're laying on people what they can't handle, and it's like the flames leap from the future and burn them in the present, and you're converting them to a hellish reality, and you're bringing hell from the future into the present. Why is that? Well, Um, There's this word that goes around church circles and it's called uh, legalism or or it'll refer to someone and say, oh, that's a really legalistic person. What what do we mean by that? Um, We mean by that a person who thinks that they are in by their deeds with God or they're out by their deeds with God. So they, they do the right things, they're in. They do the wrong things, they're out. And so what happens when someone is a legalistic person is they are tormented by their deeds. They're worried that they've never done enough And at the same time, they're worried that they've done it wrong. And so there's this constant sense of anxiety they don't know how to deal with and don't know how to get rid of, but they think it's from God, so they wrestle with this anxiety all the time, and then they pass on that same framework to other people. There's no no grace, right? There's no, God made you good, and then, yeah, you've messed it up, but God came himself, and now he's going to, there's just this. Get it straight, In fact, there's a whole book uh, in the New Testament, Galatians, where the Apostle Paul, he says, listen, there's a whole book to people who live this way. And he's like, listen, no, 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 the Christian life is about God's grace, not about your efforts. So how do you, um, how do you hell-proof your life? This is, I want to give you three, three things uh, to hell-proof your life. I know I've, I'm just raising a lot of questions. I get it. Uh, again, not the exhaustive final word on this subject um, by any stretch. But I want, to, I want to give you three ways to help proof your life. Um, number one is this. You've got to embrace the message of Jesus. And and the message of Jesus is that God wants to convert you to his love. And then guess guess when when you understand that God loves you as you are, then it makes it okay for you to actually stand the truth about yourself. C.S. Lewis says those people in hell, they, they just hold on to their grudges. So if they insist on their rights or they insist on not forgiving someone or they insist on being bitter, and just, they just won't ever let that go because they've never been had the freedom to say. <laughs> You know what, God knows all of that about me and loves me anyway. And so they don't have to bear, you don't have to bear the weight of who you are alone. See, in fact, the cross is that God bears the weight of who you are. And so you no longer have to, you're not alone in this. And so his basic message is that, and, and the, the phrase that Jesus uses over and over and over again is about the kingdom of God. And there are two kind of realities to that. What Jesus means by that is, is that God is available to normal people. Um, you don't have to go through a priest or a pastor. Like people will sometimes ask me to pray for things and, and they're like, yeah, can you, can you, can you pr- toss up a prayer to the big guy? And I'm like, okay, sure, absolutely. Of course I'll pray for you. But, but, the, but the sentiment behind that is, I think you have more of a connection to God than I do. Or you have the ability to connect with God in a way that I don't have the ability. So God's gonna listen to your prayer. He's not gonna listen to me. See, they think that God's not available to them. They have to go through an intermediary. The message of Jesus is you don't have to go through an intermediary. You have direct access to God. At one point, Jesus says the kingdom of God's at hand. It's like right here. At at hand is someone right here. God's available to you. And then there's the reality that that, uh, God's available to normal people, but God's absolutely sovereign. He's absolutely in charge of the universe. And so God is taking all of this somewhere unspeakably good. And so outside of God's leadership, things are formless and in full of chaos and full of uh, terror. And, and I love how there's a, there's a theologian, his name's Abraham Kuyper. Um, this is what he said He says, there, not, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Like the message of Jesus is God's kingdom is available to you just right here. You just have to turn, just, just takes an ask. And that God's in charge of this. You don't have to fear, you don't have to worry anymore. So Jesus is saying God's available and he's, God's taking us somewhere. And so I, 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 you've got to embrace that message. That's got to be the, the, your understanding. That's the truth about reality. Second thing is this, to help proof your life, you've got to see the vision of Jesus. Well, pay attention to the message of Jesus and how Jesus interacted with people. And what you find out is that the vision of Jesus was that people matter people matter and so if you're a follower of Jesus this is uncomfortable I understand but where they are headed matters the kind of person that they are becoming is the kind of person they could become for all eternity and move themselves away from God because they don't want anything to do with God and and, and we have this idea that God is like everyone's cheerleader and that God's like oh you're doing great and so you're doing awesome too and I just am here to cheer you on God's not anyone's cheerleader people's destiny matters and this has to grip our hearts in a, in a very real way and so we if we if you grasp jesus vision then you start to fight for people and you fight against the things that would hurt people in fact john first john he says it this way he says the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the devil's work and what the, what does the devil do he destroys people that matter to god well, we want to do something about this as a church, and so um, there are a couple things. They've been weighing on me, and I'm not entirely, it's not fully formed in me yet, what we need to do, and I've been thinking about it, praying about it. I want you to think about it, pray about it too. Um, there are two things that are just killing people in the region. One is addiction. It's just a crisis. Uh, epidemic levels of addiction in our county. And, and, and since Jesus came to destroy the devil and all of his works, then then people who follow him, who say that people matter, need to do something about that. And then, then just the relationship crisis. People just don't know how to relate. They don't know how when things go wrong. They don't know how to repair relationships. And so people are alone and hurting. And, and if we have Jesus' vision of things, then the people that follow Jesus need to say, okay, we need to do something about that. And I, I'm just asking you to think about that and pray about that because we need to make a difference together in those two issues in the region, in, in my view of, of things. And, and we have to have Jesus' vision for our church. So you've got to embrace the message of Jesus, see the vision of Jesus, and then develop the character of Jesus. Um, you Listen, you can change. You're not stuck as the person that you are. You don't have to be how you are right now Forever. The beautiful thing Jesus teaches is that heaven comes from the future and invades us right now. What you know Jesus famous prayer, the Lord's prayer, uh, we pray that God your kingdom would come on earth as it is where in heaven right that heaven can invade your current reality you can change and and when you get to heaven you'll be like well I started living in heaven when I was on earth because I had God's spirit living in me and I was changing I was moving in the right direction restoration was happening in my heart and in my mind and in my life that can be your reality you can change and so so those three things the look the word and the touch they change when you get rid of a religious spirit and you embrace the message of Jesus and you see the vision of Jesus, Jesus begins to develop a different kind of character in, your, in you. And so you move from having a, a look of disappointment to a look that says, welcome. I've told this story before. I'll tell it again. You speak every week and try to come up with all new material and not re, 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 reuse things. Uh, famous, Kind of famous story about George Washington when he was a general. He was going across a stream. He and an officer and there was a man standing on the this, this side of the stream, and it was kind of deep and flowing fast. And the man looked up at George Washington and said, can I have a ride? George Washington didn't announce himself or say, I'm George Washington, the general of the Revolutionary Army. didn't say anything like that. And uh, the other guy just kind of looked at him like, well, what are you doing? And George Washington lets the guy get on the horse, takes him across, gets down. George Washington moves off a little bit. And the other guy, the officer, comes and says, D- who do you think you are? Don't you know who that is? He's like, no, I, I don't know. Who that's George Washington. How dare you? Why in the world would you ask someone like that? Someone like you asked someone like that. He, this is what he said. Well, he had a yes face. The, the character change that comes out of you is then you, the way you begin to look at people is you begin to have a yes face. You look at people in a way that welcomes them. Some of us need to go from this to this Like, it's like, what's in our heart has not made it to our face yet. We got to let it get there. A look that says welcome, and then a word that moves from letting people know they didn't measure up to your words then encourage people. When you speak, you speak life to people. Even when you don't agree with somebody, you do your best to speak life to them. And then a touch, so from no touch or hurtful touch to hugs and high fives and fist bump. I'm talking about safe touch here, but listen, all of us crave healthy touch, even people who don't like to hug. Mm, don't hug me. Everybody loves healthy, safe, good touch. Everybody. You interact with people every day, especially, I, I have, my wife and I have three kids, Hudson, Corbin, and Carrington. And my boys are old enough now that at every moment they are trying to beat me up and tackle me. And so I have to brace myself everywhere I go for like a hit from a linebacker. (laughs) The reason they do that is because they are craving touch. And if you're a parent in that phase of life, you get a lot of touch. But I just want you to think about the person who has no family and never gets a touch. Or the person their spouse has died and they haven't been touched in a week. Or the person who's just been damaged by life and so you're just kind of, like I can feel, I, I try my best because I know this is important to touch people. If you, if you come in, I, I will touch you. I'll put you, my hand on the shoulder, I'll shake your hand, put my hand on your arm. Because I know touch matters. But sometimes I'll feel someone tense up like, oh, oh. And, and when that person finds out that you mean well for them, you'll feel their body go, oh. And so you look, and you give words, and and you touch people the way that Jesus would. We have a sign in our volunteer room, and maybe you're a volunteer and you've never seen the sign, and this will make you, clue you in that we have a sign that says this. But that we want, when you come in this building, or you experience anybody who's a real lifer, that you feel welcome and wanted. This is our way of saying, we're going to exude the character of Jesus to be welcome and wanted. Welcome and wanted. Um, Listen, attaching yourself to Jesus, moving in the direction of Jesus, you never even have to worry about hell. It's not even like, oh my gosh, am I, no, you just attach, because you know where Jesus is always going? To heaven. (laughs) And no fear has to come into your heart. No, oh, I didn't get that right, I didn't say that right, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to hell. No, no, you never have to worry about that, because you're with him, and he's going to take you where he's going. And so embrace the message of Jesus and see the vision of Jesus and develop the character. That's what God's going to do in you instead of the other place. I thought it would be really helpful um, as we pray. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not into um, fear conversions. <laughs> but there is a reality Jesus taught about Gehenna and Hades that I, I just don't want any part of. And any sane person wants no part of. And um, I, I would like it, if you're, if you're open to it, to attach yourself to Jesus and move in the direction he's going instead of the other direction. And so I'd just like to give you a really simple prayer that you could pray. If you would close your eyes and um, bow your head, um, I would invite you to pray this, if this would be helpful to you. Say, dear God, I need your help. I'm living in hell, and I want out. So I want to go with you, where you are going. So bring heaven into my life. Thank you, God, for my friends here today. Uh, All of us are on a journey. All of us are going from some place to another place. Some of us know where we're going, some don't. Some of us are confused, some of us aren't. We just want to attach ourselves to you. You brought heaven to earth. Right now, in our current reality, we want to experience what you said is possible for heaven to begin breaking into our life, to bring restoration, to hear from you the message that you gave us when you created us, that we're very good. Yeah, we mess things up, and yeah, you yourself have come to make up for our gaps, but now you're in the process of putting us back together and restoring us. And we long for the day when everything's made right, when there's no more tears and pain and sorrow in the world. And so we want to attach ourselves to you, and we want to go where you are going, Jesus, to heaven. So thank you that um, your kingdom is at hand. It's right here. It's just a word away. It's just a turn away. So thank you that we can be a part of your kingdom. We pray these things in your name, all God's people said. Amen. We always leave you with a blessing. And if you'd stand, uh, you'll see people around you. They hold out their hands. It's their way of tangibly saying, I'd like to receive a blessing. And if you're comfortable with that, great. If you're not, that's okay. Just receive this blessing. You're sent out to love God to love people, to serve the world in Jesus' name. Hug somebody, tell me you love them. See ya.